and welcome to A Bookish Home. I'm your host, librarian and writer, Laura Zaro-Kopinski, and today my guest is Dolan Perkins Valdez. Her new historical novel, Take My Hand, is a profoundly moving story about a Black nurse in post-segregation Alabama who blows the whistle on a terrible wrong done to her patients and is inspired by true events. Celeste Ng called the book deeply empathetic yet unflinching in its gaze, an unforgettable exploration of responsibility and redemption. A little more about Dolan. She is the New York Times bestselling author of Wench and Balm. She was a finalist for two NAACP Image Awards and the Hurston Wright Legacy Award for Fiction. And she was awarded the first novelist award by the Black Caucus of the American Library Association. Dolan is the current chair of the board of the Penn Faulkner Foundation. On behalf of the foundation, she has visited nearly every public high school in the District of Columbia to talk about the importance of reading and writing. She is currently associate professor in the literature department at American University and lives in Washington, D.C. with her family. Dolan Perkins Valdez, welcome to A Bookish Home. Thank you so much for coming on and congrats on the book. Thank you. Thank you for having me. How does it feel to have the book out in the world? It's a relief. (laughs) I (laughs) I bet. Wait for so long and I am just so happy that today people can walk in a bookstore and find it. So, so awesome. Oh, yay. And I feel like it's beginning um, so much buzz and rave reviews. I feel like I've been seeing it everywhere. So that must be exciting. Can you tell listeners a little bit about Take My Hand um, and these characters? Sure. The book is set in Montgomery, Alabama, 1973. It's about a young nurse, Sybil Townsend, who has just graduated from nursing school at Tuskegee. She's taken her first job at a family planning clinic. She wants to do good in her community and help young women find reproductive freedom. But very quickly, she discovers that the clinic is not exactly what she thought it was. I love the way you capture the time period here, the setting, the characters just are so vivid and moving. And I was curious sort of about what drew you to this time and this setting that you bring to life so well. And I was looking at one interview um, you had done where you talked about how you're really looking to find stories that aren't told for you to write about. And you said um, that really need to be told. Can you talk a little bit about kind of how you uncovered this story and what made you feel like, okay, this is it. This is what I want to take on as my next project and tell that story. Well, I'm drawn to my own curiosity, really. I learned a long time ago, I didn't know this when I wrote my first book, but I learned that the things that I'm curious about, other people are curious about. And I think that's really probably true of all of us, that we all share a sort of natural human curiosity. It's taken me a long time to learn this, but I'm, you know, uh, you know, I'm a little slow in that regard. But I was so curious about these girls, um, the real sisters, Mary Alice and Minnie Lee Ralph, who were only 12 and 14 years old when they were sterilized without their family's consent. I was so curious about this story and I wanted more people to know about it. So I began to think about the story from the perspective of just studying what happened with them. But I was going through the Montgomery Advertiser, the local newspaper, and I came upon this line where the supervising nurse, um, she was a white woman who was originally named in the lawsuit. She was named as well as the clinic in the original lawsuit. 
And in her defense, she said that it must have been okay to sterilize the girls because all eight nurses who worked in the clinic were black. And I said, what? I, I, I was sort of stunned by that line, not stunned by her defending herself in that way, but stunned that all of the nurses were black. But I couldn't find anything about those nurses. I, I never found their names. I never found any material about them. In fact, I'm not even sure it's 100% true, although I suspect that it was. So I began to imagine what it must have been like to be a nurse working at that clinic and to have something like this happen right under your nose. Yeah, I could imagine reading that line and sort of feeling a bit like having that this is it moment of like just bringing those dynamics to life and everything, which you do so well. Well, you know, that was going to kind of lead to one of my other questions as we're sort of talking about bringing this this whole story to life and drawing on these real circumstances I read something else from you where you said that said one of the joys of writing about African-American history as a fiction is the absence of archival material. I think it can be very frustrating if you're a historian or an academic, but for a novelist, to me, those silences in the archives and the record are freeing and liberating. Can you talk a little bit about how you dug up what you could and kind of what your um, most helpful sources were and then kind of how you went about kind of fictionalizing and filling in holes. And I'm just, I'm always curious sort of about what that research and writing process is like. Well, I feel, you know, um, I'm really a descendant of the great Toni Morrison, who found this newspaper clinic about this woman, Margaret Garner, or this newspaper clip rather, about this uh, woman, Margaret Garner, who decided that she would rather see her children dead than be returned to slavery. And then Morrison puts that clipping aside and she comes up with Beloved. And she says in interviews later that she did not want to read anything else about Margaret Garner, that she had the seed of the story and then she wanted her imagination to take over. So I really feel inspired when I find these little slivers in the archive that are incomplete or that have holes or gaps because it allows me to enter the story and I don't have to worry about departing from the historical narrative. I would think it would be very difficult to write about someone, I don't know, like a Winston Churchill, um, about whom we have a lot of information, or even about Martin Luther King Jr. I would find it very difficult to write about him. But it's easier for me to write about ordinary people in extraordinary moments for whom we have very little record. And, and, and that's really, I think, sort of the basis of my writing career. You brought to life the sort of the political landscape of the time. And without giving too much away, there's a scene with some very real life politicians and kind of the almost like the news and the headlines of the day. Was it difficult to kind of paint that fictionally, but be incorporating sort of the real people as well and like bringing them to life? I do find it very difficult to write about real people who are famous uh, or who are well-known in history. I spent a lot of time researching just the Senate offices. Like I wanted to make sure I had the right building. The buildings have changed a little bit over the years. Um, there's different offices that different politicians occupy um, on the Hill. Um, and so I spent a lot of time short of like just calling the family and asking for photographs. <laughs> 
So I find that very, very difficult for me. I find it much easier to imagine something or someone to be sure. Yeah. Um, well, have you always been um, somebody who's really been drawn to historical novels? Is that, um, you know, has that always been sort of where you've wanted your writing journey to take you? And then kind of along with that, um, are those kind of what's interested you most as a reader in your life? Well, I was in denial about that. I would say the answer to that question is yes, in terms of I've always been attracted to history. I've always liked historical fiction, but I was in denial about whether or not that was my path. I used to say, well, I don't want to be pigeonholed as a historical fiction writer, or I don't want to be categorized as someone who only writes one thing. But I kept finding myself in the library. I kept finding myself in the archives. I kept finding myself picking up historical books for fun. <laughs> I, you know, I I am known to call a historian after I read their book and talk to them about it. Um, I have several historian friends with whom I often talk about things that have nothing to do with anything that I'm working on, but that just intrigue me. When I was a graduate student, I, you know, felt very insecure about my interest in history because I was studying American literature and I gave this talk one time. I kept apologizing, saying, I'm not a historian, I'm not a historian. And afterwards, one of the historians, one of the trained historians came up to me and said, you should stop apologizing for that. You are a historian. And I said, well, you know, I'm not a trained historian. And he said, no, you are a historian. So it took me a long time to understand that my my interest in history is very real. When I visit, like I visited Gettysburg for the first time, I, it rises up before me. I have a real connection with the past where I can see it and feel it and smell it. And like, I just have a real connection with the past in that way. When you bring that um, to the page so well, I feel like the, the past just comes to life in this story so vividly. And, you know, that made me wonder too, are there kind of along with the um, idea of being so interested in historical novels, are there certain authors uh, that have had a big influence on you? Are there ways you've gone about kind of trying to like master this genre? I'm just kind of curious as your, as your writing journey unfolded, sort of what kind of shape that took on? Well, I would say in the early years, I was looking, you know, when I was younger, I was looking at people like uh, Toni Morrison. Alice Walker had written historical fiction, like The Third Life of Grange Copeland er earlier in her career. I was looking at A.J. Verdell, Gloria Naylor. I was looking at some of those women of the 1980s Black literary renaissance who were so wonderful. But as I have uh, matured as a writer, I've really looked around at my contemporaries because I think it's really important to know what's going on in historical fiction right now. Who are you in conversation with? And what kinds of forms are readers expecting? So now I read people like Kate Quinn, Fiona Davis, Chris Bojalian. Um, I like Denny Bryce. I, I really like um, what some of the newer historical fiction writers are doing. I love Ya Jesse, uh, who I consider a historical fiction writer. I love, um, you know, there's just a, a number of different contemporary people who I, I'm learning from, I learned, I, I learned from Kate Quinn about working on the dual timeline novel, which is very popular within the genre of historical fiction now. So, yeah, I mean, uh, I'm constantly influenced. I'm constantly growing and constantly reading. 
I love that. And there's so many, you're right, there's so many wonderful um, historical novels coming out right now. I, you know, I was curious about your your teaching role as a professor and how, if that influences your writing life at all, um, and even just what kinds of books you teach. That's a really good question. I am in the literature department, but I don't teach literature uh, much anymore. Every now and then I might teach a literature class. But I am in a creative writing program, and the majority of my teaching is teaching fiction. I mostly teach short stories because that form just fits the classroom better, even though I wouldn't call myself a master of the short story form. Um, so uh, what, the, what, what the workshop does for me is it reminds me of some of those technical elements that I forget sometimes. It reminds me of dialogue subtext. It reminds me to think about narrative arc in certain kinds of ways. It reminds me to think about character development. I learn a lot from my students, even my undergraduates. I have some of the smartest undergraduates at American University who teach me all the time, who are very well read, who share things that they're reading, who share their thoughts on things. I, I stopped teaching for a little bit after my first book came out. And I missed my students. I missed learning from them. I missed the energy I get from them. So I would say I learn as much from them as they learn from me. And it is always my greatest hope and my greatest joy that they will publish and that we can continue that conversation well into their careers. I love that. And just the idea of being in conversation with all these writers. Well, I was curious too about your work with the Penn Faulkner Foundation and kind of going into the public high schools. Could you talk a little bit about what that experience has been like? Sure. So we have a program called Writers in Schools, and we provide books. So if the teacher requests a certain book on our list, we will provide the book to all of the, that teacher's students. And then we'll, we'll arrange an author visit who, uh, who comes into the class. And there's a lesson plan that is collaborated upon between the teacher and our staff members. And we have done hundreds and hundreds of these visits over the years between D.C. and Baltimore public schools, public and charter. We have introduced many students to getting their first signed book. Um, I, I, you know, I say that the best moment I've ever had when I was in a classroom, and this is not the only time, but I just remember this one specific time uh, I was talking and giving a lecture and there was a student uh, in the in the front row who looked like he was sort of sleeping. And uh, at one point he sort of wakes up and he turns over the book that's on his desk and he looks at the picture and he looks at me and he said, wait a minute. That's you. <laughs> and I said, yeah, I've been talking for 45 minutes. And he like woke up. He sat up. We ended up talking. He walked into my car and carried my bag. He wanted to talk about books. He wanted to talk about, you know, comics, which were his thing, you know. And for some of these writers, they've never met a living writer. And it's transformative. And so I really believe in the work that Penn Faulkner is doing. And, of course, we also bestow uh, two of the most prestigious awards in, in the country, the Penn Faulkner Award for Fiction and the Penn Malamud Award for the Short Story. Oh, I love that. Um, and I do think that's so wonderful for young people to get to meet a real author and then to see, you know, okay, it's a real person writing these books. Maybe I could do that too. Um, Absolutely. 
Yeah. Well, you know, you have all of these different hats you're wearing, and I'm kind of always interested in people's writing routines and how they carve out that space to to be creative and to um, also within the author hat, you know, you're doing interviews like this and you're doing probably a book tour and promotion. So how do you kind of strike a balance um, wearing all those hats and what is your writing routine like? Well, I would definitely say I'm not a model for anybody because (laughs) I have no answers. I live a crazy person's life. Um, I have two children. One is a teenager and the other one is in second grade. Um, I have a slightly crazy rescue dog um, who demands attention. I live in the middle of the city, which is very difficult to sort of find quiet time. So I would just say I squeeze it in where I can. There have been time periods where I have been an early morning writer. There have been time periods where I've been a late night writer. There have been time periods where I was a middle of the day writer. I've had periods where I dictated on my phone while I was driving. I write longhand a lot so that I don't have to be at my desk. So I keep a notebook in my purse. Um, I've had times where I tapped things out on the notes app on my phone. I just try to get it done however I can. I'm compelled to write. I'm always writing, I feel, against you know, not to sound morbid or anything, but against the clock of death. <laughs> I always <laughs> feel like I'm going to die before I can get my story told. I've heard other writers say this, like they feel the same way. And, you know, once I get to a certain point in the manuscript, I do email it to a couple of people just in case. <laughs> and uh, oh, I love that. I know it's strange, but true. And so I'm always, even though I'm a slow writer, I wouldn't say I'm a fast writer. I mean, this book took seven years. But I am always feeling that impending sense of doom. And so that's why I just squeeze it in however I can. Yeah. When you're talking about Take My Hand taking seven years, I'm wondering kind of how that process unfolded. And if there was a point that was particularly difficult in the writing um, or even revision process, I guess, you know, are you someone who kind of really likes like creating a messy first draft, but then revision is hard? Or do you, um, I'm just kind of curious kind of what the the most challenging part and maybe sort of the part you enjoy the most in the writing process. I'm definitely an outliner. I have learned that the hard way that I am messy. I'm all, I mean, that doesn't mean that my first drafts aren't messy. My outlines are messy too, but I can't just sit down and think of something, you know, my daughter wants to be a graphic novelist and she recently took a class and my daughter is the opposite of me. She's a pantser, uh, which means basically, you know, flying by the seat of your pants. And the teacher wanted them to storyboard their stories before writing them. And my daughter was just, Oh, I cannot do this. I cannot storyboard. I just have to. And, you know, everybody has their approach. So for me, I have to have some kind of uh, vague, outline before I start. And even then it's a messy first draft. And even after I have that draft, I outline again, I'm constantly refining to just make sure that everything is working because I have to hold so many, you know, those of us, and and I'm sure this is the same for you and all of us in this hectic modern world, we have 5 million things going on at the same time. And so compartmentalizing is becoming more and more of a challenge, I feel. And so in order for me to sit down and and shift my mind from, okay, I just finished taking my kid to band practice and arguing with my 
seven-year-old about wearing a sweater to school today. Now I got to sit down and try to get back in the world of this book. It helps me to have a few notes to say, okay, this is what's on your to-do list today, Dolan. Yeah. And, you know, along with that, was it difficult to sort of enter, um, kind of inhabit Sybil's mind and experiences and like to kind of keep going back into that place, especially because, again, not giving too much away, some of it does become just uh, just so difficult and challenging for her and all of the characters. Was it sort of hard to get into her head as you're kind of picking it up where you can and kind of reentering that world? I mean, I think generally speaking, it's hard to get into the heads of historical people because they don't think the same way we do. They don't have the same level of media consumption. They just are different. I think that is a challenge regardless. But when I'm writing, uh, it's all in my head. Right now, it's none of it is in my head. I don't even remember what I wrote. After I let go of the manuscript, it just disappears. But during the period that I'm writing, it's all in there. And as soon as I access it, which is what my notes help me to do, I have that entire world. And so you've talked to someone where, you know, you ask them a question about their manuscript and they just start talking, talking, talking really fast. And you realize like, whoa, you have a whole world going on in there. (laughs) When I'm working on a manuscript, that's me. It's like, if you ask me one little simple question, you won't get a simple answer. I'll say, I'll tell you like, 15 reasons why I made a choice. But right now I, I I don't have that kind of access to it because I'm working on something else and I've kind of let it go. But yeah. yeah that's interesting. You know, just a couple last questions. I don't want to keep you too long, but I would love to hear if you're able to share anything about what you're working on next or even maybe what time period you're, you're visiting. And then um, if there's any books you've been reading lately that you could recommend for listeners. Well, um, my new book, I'm, I'm not quite ready to talk about just because it could change. Mm. <laughs> but uh, it is back to the late 1800s, early 1900s. Um, because at heart, you know, I love history. And that's just where I find myself quite often. Um, so I'll just say that. Mm. And in terms of uh, what I just, I just picked up The Lioness by Chris Bojalian. And it is a page turner. Uh, Chris Bojalian is one of my favorite writers years ago when I used to um, volunteer at my local independent bookstore to sell books for the day. I could sell Chris Bojalian all day long because his research is meticulous. His characters are well developed. I honestly, I don't know how a man does it and <laughs> learn so much. Yeah. And he still, he publishes so quickly and um, just a brilliant, brilliant writer and really a good person. So I'm going to recommend that people order The Lioness by Chris Bojalian. You will not regret it. It's a page turner. Oh, nice. Yes, I, I keep seeing that one. I've got to um, add that to my list. I'm, I'm just really glad I got to read the book. I hope people order their copy of Take My Hand. I hope that librarians um, add it to their bookshelves. And I um, will really look forward to reading what comes next as well. And I can link to your um, website so people can follow you online and um, maybe see if any virtual events or anything like that is coming up. But Dolan, just thank you so much for um, coming on A Bookish Home and congratulations on the book. I think this story is really going to stay with um, readers for a long time. Thank you so much. I appreciate it. For links to all of the books mentioned on this week's episode, you can visit abookishhome.com. And there you'll also find a link to our new online bookshop. 
Um, a Bookish Home has teamed up with the new organization Bookshop.org, which supports independent bookstores. And if you'd like, you can browse books by authors who have been guests on A Bookish Home. I'm also sharing there all the books mentioned on the podcast, books I've been reading lately, and other recommendations. It's a really wonderful site to browse and look through books. And if you make a purchase, it supports a bookish home and independent bookstores. So it's a win-win. So if you want to check that out directly, it's bookshop.org shop slash a bookish home. And you'll also find that at abookishhome.com. If you are enjoying the show, I hope you take a minute to subscribe and also rate and review in iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. And if you enjoyed this episode, I would encourage you to share it on social media to help other people find the show and this episode. Thanks for listening, everyone, and happy reading.